you would, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we continue on in our exposition of this epistle, uh, we're going to be considering verses 1 through 11, but truthfully, uh, I don't have any dreams of making it all the way through the end of verse 11 this morning. Uh, But that is one thought, one literary unit, Uh, and so this will be part one of what will be two parts. Considering the topic, or the the title, I should say, coming straight from the chapter, written for our admonition. Written for our admonition. And my prayer is that we make it through verse 6 today. What you'll see in 1 Corinthians 10 is that Paul kind of repeats himself a little bit in, in his structure. So he'll, he'll give, in verses 1 through 5, he'll give some examples that were written for our admonition. And then in verse 10, he will tell us, these things are written for your admonition. And then in verses 6 through 10, he will give us some more examples from the Old Testament. And then in verse 10, he will say, these things were written for your admonition. Um, however, they're different examples and they're different facets of this one structure Uh, So we'll consider them in two parts, and this morning looking at verses 1 through 6. So let me read our text, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. These are the words of God. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were written for our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted." Some have asked whether this section of 1 Corinthians from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, is really about meat sacrificed to idols, or is it about Christian liberty? Well, the answer is it's about both of those things. When the Corinthians wrote to Paul, you know, that this latter half of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, really through the, the end almost, is, uh, is guided by a letter that the Corinthian church sent to Paul in which they asked a bunch of questions on how to handle different matters in the church. And what we have in chapters 7 through chapters 15 are Paul's answers to those questions. And one of the questions concerned meats sacrificed to idols, which was a very big and pressing issue in the first century. And Paul answers that question by laying out the foundations of Christian liberty. Because Paul knew that a proper understanding of Christian liberty was essential to rightly handling the question of meats sacrificed to idols. So we see that this section really is about both of those things. And even here in chapter 10, Paul is still dealing with Christian liberty, principles about Christian liberty and meats sacrificed to idols, as we're going to see as we jump into this text. Uh, Let me give you a refresher. In chapter 8, Paul lays a solid foundation for the importance and the principles of Christian liberty. Namely, the the driving point there in chapter 8 was that our liberty must be limited and governed by our love. You might have the liberty to partake of or participate in something, but you do not have the liberty to cause your brother to sin. 
And if you truly have the Spirit of God inside of you, you will gladly set your liberties to the side because you love your brother more than you love indulging in your liberties. I'll give you a practical example. Some of you in this church may have the liberty to drink a glass of wine in the evening before bed. You might have that liberty. You can do it, and you can do it under the glory of God. But others of you in this same church don't have that liberty, and for you to recreationally drink alcohol would be sin. And so when you are invited over to the house of someone who does have that liberty, the principle is they abstain from it because they love you more than they love indulging in their liberty. And that's the, the principle there. We don't flaunt our liberties. Well, then in chapter 9... Paul uses himself as an example of someone who has laid aside many liberties for the sake of the gospel. Paul did not live the way many Christians live, especially here in the West, always thinking about himself and his rights. Do you think Paul had personal opinions? Do you think Paul had certain things he enjoyed doing? Do you think he had certain political leanings, cultural traditions? Well, of course he did. But he never allowed those things to interfere with his sole purpose for living, which was to advance the gospel of Christ and bring the message of salvation to lost sinners. For Paul, listen closely, for Paul, Christian liberty wasn't the freedom to indulge in worldly pleasures and still be a Christian. For Paul, Christian liberty, he used it to become all things to all men that he might win them to the gospel. He had the liberty to become like someone that he wasn't necessarily in order to relate to them and win them with the gospel. We use our liberties to get out of spiritual duties many times. But Paul used his liberty to accomplish his spiritual duties. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Paul understood that circumcision was nothing. Right, But yet he saw that Christian liberty allowed him to, to partake in it or not partake in it. So Titus, he refused to have circumcised because Christian liberty said Titus doesn't have to be circumcised because he's a Greek. And Paul would not cave into the pressure of the Judaizers who were calling on him to have Titus circumcised. But Timothy's a different story. Timothy was a Jew. And Timothy's ministry would, would be hindered if he wasn't circumcised. Paul knew Timothy was under no compulsion to be circumcised. But Christian liberty said, hey, Timothy, it's not a sin for you to be circumcised. So why don't you use your Christian liberty to be circumcised so that your ministry could be more profitable? That's how Paul viewed Christian liberty. See, the sad indictment upon many evangelicals in America today is that they're willing to go to a lost person and get on their level in order to reach them with the gospel as long as they're a white Republican conservative just like them. It's easy to witness to that guy because that guy's like you. You don't really have to compromise your liberties or set them aside to witness to that guy. But when's the last time you shared the gospel out of a genuine love and care for someone whose skin is darker than yours and voted for Biden in the last election. Well, to relate to that person, to be able to share the gospel to that person, that might require you to set aside some of your liberties, some of your indulgences, and to accommodate yourself to them. I'm not saying that you need to start partaking in the sins they partake in. But you need to 
set aside your privileges and accommodate yourself so that the gospel might be preeminent. Well, that was chapter 9, and now as we come to chapter 10, Paul uses one final illustration to conclude his teachings on Christian liberty and the disciplined life of the Christian. Christian liberty and Christian discipline go hand in hand. Paul, being the gifted preacher and teacher that he is, is a master illustrator. His illustrations are phenomenal. And unlike using himself as a positive example in chapter 9, he will now reference Old Testament Israel as a negative example. The first section of chapter 10 is a warning. This section is a warning. Paul will warn us of what happens when we abuse our Christian liberty. Sometimes what we call Christian liberty is really just living undisciplined lives and seeking carnal amusements. And we do it under the cloak of Christian liberty. You'll remember at the end of chapter 9, Paul told us that he beats his body and he disciplines himself to run the race of faith and not become a castaway. Well, in this chapter, in chapter 10, we will see that the discipline that characterized Paul's life was not present in the lives of the Israelites who followed Moses out of Egypt. In the narrative of the Old Testament, we see what it looks like when through a lack of discipline and overindulgence we become castaways. Before we dive into this text in chapter 10, I want to ask you, which path are you on this morning? I want you throughout this message to examine your heart and evaluate your own life and honestly answer yourself. It is evident that some of you are truly striving to be godly and to live holy lives. And there's been improvements in that and there's been Progress made in that, in this church, in the lives of so many of you. But there are others who, in certain areas of your lives, you are seeking to be as worldly as you can while still being a Christian. And you defend this worldliness by claiming that your Christian liberty gives you the right to partake in it. But when you attempt to keep your worldliness and your Christianity, you abuse your Christian liberty and you become a castaway. See, an immature believer examines their lives. They look at the clothes they wear, the music they listen to, the movies they watch, the people they hang out with, the games they play, the food they eat. They look at all of these things and they ask, does the Bible condemn this? And if in five minutes of skimming they can't find a clear, absolute prohibition in the Bible, they say, well, I guess God is fine with me doing this. But a mature Christian examines their lives and asks about everything, what decision would most glorify God and most profit my holiness? Do you see the difference in those two questions? A mature Christian doesn't try to see how close to the world they can live and maintain their Christianity. A mature Christian attempts to live as close to God as he can and become as holy as he or she can be. And that is my desire for all of us here at this church, that we would not flirt with the world 
and seek to be as culturally acceptable and approved as we can be while also maintaining our Christianity, but that we would care nothing for the things of this world and that we would seek to be as close to God as we can be and that we could understand that as long as we're pleasing him, it doesn't matter who we displease, but if we displease him, it doesn't matter who we please. Well, this is the one driving principle as Paul deals with Christian liberty in chapter 10. And he's now going to illustrate that argument with the Old Testament. So I want you to see first, beginning in verse 1, the spiritual resemblance. The spiritual resemblance. Because the Old Testament saints resemble us. And we need to study them, not just so we can have a good knowledge of history, but so that we can apply the lessons that they teach us to our own lives. So Paul begins in verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, now don't let the chapter and verse divisions confuse you. Uh, Paul is continuing his preceding thought. The, the word for moreover is really the Greek preposition for or because. So Paul is now telling us why he said what he said in verses, nine, or verses 26 and 27 of chapter 9. Look at them. Paul said, I therefore so run, this is chapter 9, verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Why do you do that, Paul? Verse 1 of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. And again, he's not saying... I want to make sure you know your Old Testament history and that you know your Bible stories. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want to make sure that you understand the implications of these stories on your life. Now, it's true that you can't apply something that you don't know anything about. So Paul presumes that we have a working knowledge of our Old Testaments. But it's not just enough to know dates and places and names and characters. No, Paul wants us to apply these lessons to our lives. So you may read the Bible, and you may understand what it says, but if you fail to apply it to your life, you will be destroyed. The Bible will not profit you. What a sad day it will be for many Christians when they stand before God on the last day, having read the Word time and time again, having listened to sermon after sermon, yet having failed to apply the Word to their life. We want to go beyond just a mere cognitive knowledge of the Word of God, and we want it to to transform the way that we live. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what this means for you today. Then he goes on and he says, how that all our fathers, that's really an interesting designation for the Israelites, underscore the fact that Paul calls the Israelites the fathers of the Corinthians, and By extension, they are your fathers. But how could that be? How could he say that to a Gentile church? How could the Israelites be your fathers? Because the New Testament church that is composed of Jew and Gentile is the true Israel of God. The Israel of God was was, was the family of faith. And though we don't necessarily have a physical connection to Abraham... Abraham is our father in the sense that he's the father of all of the faithful. Amen. May that help you when you read your Old Testament. You're not reading of a, of a um, dismembered, drawn away, detached, 
group of people that lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. You're reading church history. You're reading your history. You're reading about your ancestors. You're reading about those who came before you and professed to have faith in Jehovah just as you do and participated in the externals of religion just as you do. And what Paul will show us with these Israelites is that membership in the visible church profits nothing if our hearts are carnal. And that was true in the Old Testament. And that's true today. You know, oftentimes people will want to make God out to be so wicked and so cruel and so harsh in the Old Testament. Not only the way that he would annihilate pagan uh, civilizations, but even in the way that he treated Israel. However, if you would just stop and read the narratives of the Old Testament and look at the sins that were committed by Israel, it's a wonder that God didn't wipe them off the face of the earth many times over. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you about our fathers, the Israelites, our spiritual ancestors, and I'm going to apply these lessons to your life. And then he goes on to draw these parallels of spiritual resemblance. Notice he says, all our fathers were under the cloud. In the Old Testament, the glory of God appeared in a cloud and led the Israelites throughout the wilderness journey. The examples that Paul draws here come all from that epic of history that we would call the Exodus and the Wanderings. It's the time between when Moses led Israel out of Egypt until Joshua led them into the Promised Land. And in that period, there was a visible cloud Uh, the, The manifest glory of God that would appear, it was a cloud by day and it was a fire by night and it guided Israel. And when the cloud would move, they were to move. They were a people exposed to the glory of God just like you. You know something of God's goodness. You know something of God's attributes. You know something of the reality of who he is and it is this glory, this cloud that is to guide you even in your own life. Not a visible cloud, uh, but the glory of God that's revealed in the Word of God and that's revealed in creation. The truths that that teaches you about who God is, that is to be the guiding principle in your life. And Paul said, just like you have that, they had that. They had the glory of God. Then he goes on to say, and they all passed through the sea. Well, we know what this is talking about. The most significant redemptive event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. Uh, Before the the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, before Calvary, the Exodus was the event. It was the event that God would remind the children of Israel of time and time again when he would renew covenants with them. When he gave them the law, he told them, I am the Lord thy God which hath led you out of the land of Egypt. It was the event. God led them out and they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, and they escaped Pharaoh's army, and they experienced God's deliverance, and they saw something of his grace and his mercy. You would think, you would think that if you just miraculously walked across the ocean on dry ground, one commentator said that their sandals were even a little dusty when they got to the other shore. That's how dry it was. 
you would think that if you walked across an ocean on dry ground and then you saw the army that was chasing you drowned in the, in the sea, you would think that you would, you would maybe start to think about the way you live your life. And we sit there and we say, how could the Israelites, having experienced the exodus, go on to commit some of the boneheaded sins that they committed? Well, how can you? having experienced the cross of Calvary, the Son of God came to earth and died for you and shed His blood for you. And yet, as Luther says, we carry around in our pockets daily the hammer and the nails that hung Him there. Paul goes on, he says, and they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul is here using New Testament language to connect the Corinthians with this Old Testament parallel. He's not saying that Moses literally baptized anyone into the sea. Baptism is a New Testament ordinance. But what is baptism? Baptism is identification. That's what it is. When you were baptized... You publicly identified before the whole world that you were in a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ and His church. And you need to see the typology to really understand this passage. The Exodus is a type of redemption, and Moses is a type of Christ. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is this. He says, just as you were saved, you were delivered, and then after you were delivered... You publicly identified with Christ in baptism, so too were the Israelites. After Moses led them out of Egypt, they all passed through the sea and identified with Jehovah and with Moses as their leader. So I can prove to you that the Apostle Paul was a Baptist. Because Paul believed, as do we, that your outward public identification should correspond with the inner reality of your heart. Isn't that what he's saying here? You were delivered, and then after you were delivered, you were baptized. Water baptism does not save you, but if you are saved, then you are commanded to be baptized to publicly identify yourself with what God has done within you. And so we strive imperfectly because we can't see hearts, we strive to ensure that those we administer the ordinance of baptism to are truly regenerate. It's, it's, it's out of order. It's, it's wrong. It's bad for someone to be saved and not be baptized. But you know what's worse than that? What's far worse than that? For someone to be baptized who isn't saved. Amen. That's, that's why Paul is bringing this up. Because all Israel was baptized in identification. But not all Israel was inwardly united to Jehovah. Is it possible to be a baptized church member who participates in all the externals of religion and not have a saving relationship with the God whom you publicly identify? Mm -hmm. Well, not only is it possible, brothers and sisters, but it is the problem that plagued Israel and it's the problem that plagues the church today. All across our country, we have churches filled with people who walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and were baptized, but their hearts are far from God. They're unconverted. And their public identification is nothing more than a lie. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to the church. They're lying to God. 
By the way, this is why we practice church discipline. Because when someone publicly identifies with God and His people through baptism and church membership, but then they live in such a way that manifests that they truly don't know God and they're truly not united to God, then for His glory, that identification needs to be removed. And those who say that church discipline is cruel and unloving do so because they care more about the emotions of sinners than they do about the glory and holiness of God. Amen. So Paul continues. He says, they were all baptized into Moses. What he's doing in this, in this chapter, because he, you know, he's going to also say later, he that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. What he's doing in this chapter is he's building them up. He's building them up. He's saying, hey, they, they, they passed through the sea. They were baptized. Uh, then he's going to say, they ate the same spiritual meat, they drank the same spiritual drink, they, they did everything you're doing. And look what happened to them. So they did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink. Well, if passing through the sea was a parallel to Christian baptism, then what might Paul have in mind when he alludes to eating and drinking spiritual meat and drink? Well, the image is clear. He, he's implying the Lord's Supper in this. He's saying, those Corinthians, man, they, they were baptized and they took the supper. Just like you. Paul is drawing a comparison between the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament church. They identified with Moses, you identified with Christ. They passed through the sea, you received Christian baptism. They ate the manna that fell from the sky, you partake of the Lord's Supper. The spiritual meat, historically, we know is a reference to that manna that fell from heaven. Uh, everybody wonders what is manna? That's literally what the word means. It means it's Hebrew for what is it? As bread fell from the sky and they gathered it up and they ate it. And it's not spiritual because there was anything special about the bread itself. That's not why he calls it spiritual bread. He calls it spiritual bread because it was the means through which God miraculously provided for their needs. You know, I know we've had some crazy weather lately here in Tennessee, but I've not seen in the forecast for bread to fall from the sky. Okay? Well, what about the spiritual drink? He goes on in verse 4. He says, They did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that rock which followed them, that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is really a marvelous passage that shows the connection between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. They had Christ. Externally and objectively, they had Christ. He was preached among them. He was, he was known among them. They knew of Him. The Old Testament is a Christian book. Amen. God did not give us two books. He gave us one book. Amen. And the Jews in the wilderness had Christ among them. It was among them in the same way that in churches Christ is preached and Christ is proclaimed and Christ is among them. Christ is in some of them. But yet there are unconverted souls sitting in that pew tasting of the heavenly things, seeing of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ yet lost. There are several views on the precise understanding of this spiritual rock. What is he talking about? That rock followed them. Well, there's a rabbinic tradition that the rock that Moses smote in Exodus 17, you remember that story there at Meribah? The rock that Moses smote continuously followed Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. 
We don't know how big that rock was. It wasn't very big, but out of it gushed enough water uh, to uh, satisfy the thirst of two million people. Again, it's a miraculous act of God meeting the needs of his people. Uh, whether the rock actually followed them on their journeys, I, I, I don't know. That's the rabbinic tradition. But regardless of that, the, the point is uh, that it's symbolic of God's provisions for his people. That's what he wants you to understand. He wants you to see that the Israelites were baptized and partook of the Lord's Supper and God met their needs. God provided for them. Common grace was extended to them. What we have in verses 1 through 4 is not just an illustration of the Old Testament Israelites, but it's an illustration of the Christian church. It's an illustration of every local church. They are a people that are publicly identified with God, and they receive His blessings, and they profess to belong to Him. Paul has drawn this illustration, and he's noted these parallels to make one powerful point. Here's the point. Partaking of the privileges of God doesn't ensure that you're partaking of the grace of God. These Israelites had it all. They they saw the glory of God in the cloud. They walked across dry ground. They were fed bread from heaven. They drank from water that flowed from a rock in the desert. And yet, they were idolaters with carnal hearts who turned away from God and perished in their sins. All the while telling themselves, hey, we're God's chosen people. We belong to Him. Christian, do not soothe your soul by telling yourself, well, at least I'm baptized. Well, at least I'm a church member. Well, at least I partake of the Lord's Supper. At least I go to men's meeting. At least I read my Bible. At least I know a few Bible stories. So you can do all of these things all of your life and die and go straight to hell. Hell will be full of baptized church members. Because if you do these things without a heart of faith, then the means of grace become means of your own damnation. So the question that we must ask ourselves as we look at the Israelites and as we consider this passage, where is your heart before God? say, brother, what are you talking about? I thought this section was about meat sacrificed to idols and Christian liberty. And here you are talking about true and false conversion. Where is that in the text? Listen to me. Here's the connection between Christian liberty and true and false conversion. Your attitude towards and the way you use your Christian liberty reveals the condition of your heart. It really does. If you claim to be a Christian who is saved by grace, but you use that grace as a license to sin, then you are manifesting that you never partook of that grace to begin with. If you claim your Christian liberty gives you the ability to indulge in carnality and worldliness, then you are proving that you have no Christian liberty because you are not a Christian. You are publicly identifying as something that you are not. You are abusing the grace of God and the reason that He has given His grace to you. 
Christ died to make you holy. Christ died to consecrate you to himself. Christ did not die so that you could go on guilt-free in your sinning. How much more severe will the judgment be upon those who sat in church week after week and who heard the warnings of the gospel and who heard the offer of salvation in Christ and who maybe even listened to the word preached and sang the hymns of the faith? But as soon as they walked out of church, they went right back to living their sinful, sensual lives. They may have fooled others. They may have fooled the world. They may have even fooled themselves. But there's one that they haven't fooled. That's God. Amen. God was not fooled by the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he will not be fooled by you. This is a warning. This is a warning to you. Wherever your heart is with God, he knows. He knows exactly where your heart is on every issue. And I want you to see, look at verse 5. And look at how God deals with those who identify as his people, but their hearts are far from him. We saw the spiritual resemblance. I want you to see verse 5, the sinful reality. Verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now, if you paid attention in verses 1 through 4, you notice that five times Paul emphasizes the word all. All our fathers, they all passed through the sea. They all were baptized. They all experienced these benefits and blessings. All of them. And I could say that to you here this morning. I could say all of you have been baptized and all of you are church members and all of you partake of the Lord's Supper and all of you profess to know the Lord and all of you live the Christian life. But yet in verse 5, despite that, with many of them, God was not well pleased. There are some of you here today that have secret sins in your life that God absolutely hates. But you tell yourself that things aren't that bad because outwardly you look just like every other person you know that calls himself a Christian. You come to church on Sundays, you dress the part, you talk the part, You smile the part. You're faithful to all of the externals. But you know there are areas of your life that when God looks at it, He's not well pleased. And no one else knows. Your pastor doesn't know. Your friends don't know. Your family doesn't know. Your church doesn't know. But let me remind you of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, which says, The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When God looked at the hearts of the Israelites... Now, if your heart is corrupt, it will manifest itself in corruption. Okay, And it sure did with the Israelites, time and time again. They, they did plenty of things where you could objectively look at it and say, that is just absolute unfaithfulness to Jehovah. But public... Falls and public apostasy never begins with some large public manifestation. I've never heard of a man or a woman who fell into sin. Christians don't fall into sin. They slide. 
very slowly and very progressively. And before the public fall ever occurs, there's already been a private slipping in your own heart. When God looked at the hearts of those Israelites in the wilderness, he saw people that looked like they belonged to him on the outside, but on the inside, they lusted after the idols of this world. And I ask you, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? Is he pleased with what he sees? You must be honest with yourself. You you must cut through the show You must cut out the excuses. You must lay your heart bare before the Spirit of God to search you and try you in every way. With the majority of Israel in the wilderness, he was not pleased. And if you know your Old Testament, then you know what an understatement that phrase is. Two million. Two million left Egypt in the Exodus. How many was he pleased with? How many were able to enter the promised land? Yes, it was two of them. But how many were baptized? How many were identified as his people? How many partook of the externals of religion? All of them. All of them. This is not popular preaching in in a day in which everybody just wants to hear how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but it needs to be said. There are some of you sitting here this morning God is not pleased with you. If 2,000 Israel or 2 million Israelites escaped Egypt in the Exodus and God was not pleased with 998,998 of them, why should we assume that God is pleased with all of us when he looks at our hearts? I'm not calling you to morbid introspection. I'm I'm calling you to a sober examination. I'm calling you to consider your heart and to consider your life and to consider your public profession. Consider the way that you use the grace of God and the liberty that you have in Christ. Is he pleased with you? Is he pleased with you? Now, if God is not pleased with you, it's for one of two reasons. The first reason is obvious, and it's really not even the the, the main reason that I have in mind. The, The first reason is simple. If you've never truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God is not pleased with you at all. God is angry with you. You are his enemy. And God will judge you for your sins if you are outside of Christ. And it doesn't matter if if you've been baptized, if you're a member of a church, if you participate in other religious activities, if you go to Bible study, none of that matters if your heart is far from Christ. But the text begs the question, is it possible for God to be displeased with a true born-again Christian? That's really the, the, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. And if so, if he can be, in what way? Let me begin that answer with this. And I think it's important that we do start here. If you are in Christ, there is a sense in which judicially and positionally God is perfectly pleased with you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. It is impossible, because of what Christ has done, for God to look upon a true Christian with total displeasure. There's your encouragement. 
There's your encouragement. That pleasure that God looks upon you is because of Christ. Because you are in Him. When He looks at you, He sees Christ and He's pleased. Positionally. Positionally. But I'm not talking about positional truth this morning. I want us to consider our practical lives before Him as believers. We must recognize the unavoidable truth that the Bible also speaks of a sense in which God can be and is practically displeased with the actions and attitudes even of believers. Why do I say that? In fact, I think that's the type of displeasure that's talked about in this chapter. I don't believe all the Israelites who died in the wilderness were spiritually lost. That would be quite the argument. And I've heard people make that argument. I think it's quite far-fetched. Are you going to tell me that Moses was unconverted? That, that every single Israelite except Joshua and Caleb were unconverted? I, I don't deny that many of them were. Uh, but I believe that all of those 100 or 999,998 Israelites that, with whom God was displeased, I believe some of them were saved. Amen. They were converted. Yet God was displeased with them. So, if God could be displeased with Israelites who spiritually... They, they went to heaven when they died. They died in the, the wilderness and they went to heaven. Yet God was displeased. Okay, let's, let's unpack this. What did the, the displeasure cost them? They did not experience the fullness of God's blessing and the fullness of communion with God because God was not well pleased with them. They did not enter the promised land. You say, well, the promised land is a type of heaven. So as long as I'm saved, it doesn't matter how I live because I'm going to go to heaven when I die and go to the promised land. Yeah, the promised land is a type of heaven, but it's also a type of the new creation that you are living in as a Christian. He says, if any man be in Christ, new creation. Not, you will be a new creation. You are a new creation. And if you are a Christian who's living in a state in which God is displeased, you are robbing yourself and forfeiting the fullness of joy and the fullness of blessing that God has for his people as they live the Christian life. The Israelites... Lusted after the world around them. They lusted after carnality. They lusted after sensuality. And God was not well pleased with him. And such is the case with many Christians today who want to love the world and Jesus at the same time. Remember the words of James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore... Believers included, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so I ask you, how can God be pleased with us when we sing his praises on Sunday and do the things that make us his enemy Monday through Saturday? How can God be pleased with us when we willfully indulge in the sins that Christ died to save us from? We must realize that this church will not go any deeper into the things of God or experience 
more of the presence of God until we strive against those things which displease Him. And you don't have to sit around wondering what those things are. He's giving you His Word. You're just too lazy to look through it and honestly look through it and see if what you're doing is pleasing to Him or not. Is God really pleased with you? I'm not trying to give you morbid guilt, nor am I seeking to be legalistic, but you just need to be honest with yourself. Could it be that you are harboring worldliness and besetting sins in your life that grieve the Holy Spirit, keep you from the fullness of God's blessings, and displease the Lord? I can't answer these questions for you. All I can do is urge you to search your heart and look into the mirror of God's Word. This book is a mirror. You will look in this book and you will for the first time see yourself as you really are. And some of what God reveals, oh man, it might be painful. It might be hard. You'll see the ugliness. You'll see the the hidden evil. You'll see the reason why Jesus died. But you must see it. You must see it if you're going to fight against it. If you're going to pursue holiness, you must see it. Who are you when no one is looking? Who are you when you're not around other Christians? See, we we think very highly of one another, and we ought to. One of the reasons why, though, is because when we're around one another, it's typically in a very Christian context. It's really easy to look like a very godly person Sunday morning. Who are you on Tuesday afternoon? Who are you Friday night? When you're all alone, you're sitting in front of a cell phone, you're sitting in front of a computer, or you're sitting in front of a tablet, sitting in front of a TV, what's on the screen? Is it something that pleases God? When you're driving around, you're all by yourself, what's on your radio? You say, come on, you're, you're a legalist. You're a legalist. Don't you know that there's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not listen to rock and roll? You're a legalist. I'll give it to you. You're right. There is no verse in all of the Bible that says, thou shalt not listen to rock and roll. It's not in the book. But that's not the question. That's not the question. The question is not, is there a prohibition against it? The question is, does it please him? Does it please him? You get dressed to go out before you leave. Look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself Am I dressed in a way that pleases God? Am I adorned modestly like someone who has experienced the grace of God? Am I dressing so that my clothing highlights and accentuates my face? Or am I dressing carnally? and sensually, and trying my best to look just like the world because I want a sensual reaction out of people of the opposite sex. Modesty is no longer an issue that you can just preach to the women about because men are so guilty of this. Christian men. Christian women. I'm not surprised when the world dresses like the world. They they don't want to please God. They don't care about pleasing Him. But if you profess to be a Christian, your desire should be to please the God who sent His Son to die on the cross to save you. 
in these practical matters. These practical matters. You say, well, it's all about the heart. It's about a relationship. Yes, it is. And that's a very quick way, using that type of language, to become a hypocrite. You disconnect the heart from your life. We could go on and on. I, I don't know what areas of your life you need to be searching out and thinking about. The truth is, it's probably something that no one in this room knows about you. But you know it, and God knows it. And when the Lord brings to light areas in your life in which he is not pleased, because it will happen. It will happen. In fact, it will happen regularly as you grow in sanctification. When it happens, what are you going to do? How will you respond? There's the test. There's the real test. You want to talk about true and false conversion. The test is not... If you're living in a way that pleases God, then that means you're truly converted. And if you're not, it means you're a false convert. That's not the real test because true converts do things that displease God. The real test is this. When God, by the Holy Spirit, convicts you and points something out in your life and you come to the realization that this does not please Him, what are you going to do? Will you seek His grace to change? To repent of sin, to conform yourself to his perfect will, or will you make excuses for yourself? Well, I, I, I didn't find a verse that, you know, really explicitly told me that I shouldn't do that. Therefore, I must have the Christian liberty to do it. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 10. That's, that's this whole argument that he's making. Your Christian liberty is not the ability to be as worldly as possible and still go to heaven when you die. You need to quit asking the question, how worldly can I be and still be a Christian? You, know, you, know, you, you look on forums, you look on forums, you, you go online, you, you, you listen to conversations, and all the questions are like this. Can I do X, Y, or Z as a Christian? Can I do this as a Christian? What, what you don't see very many people talking about is what can I do to be more holy than I am? And I'm saying that maturity in the faith causes you to transition from asking the question, what can I get away with? To asking the question, what can I do to be more like God? Paul is writing to show us the awful reality of those in whom God is not well pleased because they're trying to be as worldly as they can and still be a Christian. Lusting after the fields of Egypt even though they've already been delivered. He goes on, look, look at the awful fate. Verse 5, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Literally, this means that their bodies were scattered about in the desert. If you were to see the, the, the wilderness in the Old Testament, you would see dead bodies everywhere. I mean, 40, 40 years, close to 2 million deaths that took place in that desert. It's been said that Moses performed more funerals than any other minister that's ever lived. How many spiritual casualties are there? Are you on track to be one? Despite having the blessings of God, the privileges of being His chosen people, the hearts of the Israelites longed after the very things God delivered them from. When God searched their heart, 
He saw their idolatry. He saw their covetousness. He saw their sensuality, and he was not well pleased. Is he pleased with you? Is he pleased with you? Do you know him? And if you do know him, are you living a life that is truly pleasing to him? Are you living so that you can experience his fullness and his blessing? Or are you just going to die in the wilderness? So many Christians have that mentality. Well, it was, it was a fun ride. I'll just die in the wilderness. That's one of the problems with the contemporary church today is we're so satisfied with being mediocre. And only in the church, only in the church is it really acceptable, this level of mediocrity. I heard an illustration one time where a man said, you know, if you have a young man and he wants to learn a trade, and he wants to become a brick mason, and he goes to a man that, uh, that has been in, in masonry for, for four decades, he's spent his whole life laying bricks, that's his profession, he knows more about it than anybody, and this young man goes to this brick mason and he says, will you train me to be a bricklayer? And the bricklayer says, well, I ain't no professional. I'm just, a, I'm just an average bricklayer. And yet in the church, we have maybe a young man or a young woman who wants to grow and who wants to become more godly, and they, they go to somebody who's more mature in the faith, who's been walking with Christ for four decades, and they say, will you disciple me in the things of God? Well, I ain't no preacher. And we look at things like consistently reading the scriptures and attending prayer meetings and reading and, and, and other things. We, we look at that as things that the super spiritual elite do, but not us. We're, we're just, nobody's perfect. While other Christians are growing in faith, rejoicing in the Lord, will you just be wandering around in the desert? Or will you live to draw this full circle Will you live, as Paul said he lived, daily disciplining my body, buffeting myself, living with purpose, living with direction, running the race so that I can enter the promised land, so that I can experience the fullness of his blessings. There's so much joy, so much joy in the Lord. There's so much depth there. And you're playing in the kiddie pool playing in the kiddie pool. You're wading. You're ankle deep in the ocean and there's this vast, vast body of glory that God is calling you to swim out into. But you got to leave your sins on the shore. you gotta leave your, you got to leave your carnality and your worldliness and your affections for this life you got to leave it on the shore. Think of, all the, think of all the things that Jesus said in the Gospels about the radical life of the disciple. If any man loves father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of me. No, you don't get to have your Jesus and keep your carnality too. Okay, why, Paul? What, what's, what's the point here? Let me give you verse 6, the stated reason. Verse 6. Paul tells us why he's chosen to use this Old Testament example. Verse 6, he says, Now these things were our examples. Paul uses the Old Testament, notice, not only to lead to Christ, but also to draw out practical examples that apply to the lives 
of New Covenant members. And what's the example? To the intent, verse 6, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We've seen that it's possible, even for believers, to incur the displeasure of God. And I want to leave you more than an encouraging reminder. If Paul said, these things are written, that you should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, then that implies, and that means, that if you heed this example, you won't lust after evil things as they also lusted. See, grace can be abused in one of two ways. Number one, when you say, I'm in Christ... So it doesn't matter how I live because God is pleased with me regardless. That is abusing grace. It's antinomianism. But secondly, you can also abuse grace when you say something like this. Well, even though I'm saved because I'm still a sinner, I can't please God no matter what I do. Listen to me very carefully. God is not calling you to live in that type of drudgery. You can, not because of yourself, but because of the grace of God that enables you, you can live in a way that pleases God and you can do things that please God. The grace of God that brings salvation also gives you the power to live a life that truly pleases Him. Before, when you were lost, you couldn't please God. But now you can. And if you really love Him, that should be wonderful news. I should have heard a shouts of amen that finally... I can please the God I love before all I could do is sin against Him. All I could do is break His law. All I could do is smite His grace. But now, Lord, You've given me the ability to actually please You. Praise God that He's given us this ability. And when God looks at us and He sees, though we're imperfect, though we're not yet glorified, but that He is the desire of our hearts, He is pleased with us. When He sees you struggling against sin, when He sees you striving to get it out of your life, when He sees you lusting after holiness, He's pleased with you, Christian. He's pleased with you. When He sees you loving one another, He's pleased with you. When He sees you now listen, because I, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm telling you that things like church membership and baptism and Bible reading are, are bad things. Not at all. When God sees you doing those things with a heart of faith, when you wake up in the morning and you say, Lord, I want to hear from you in your word, He's pleased with you. When you're faithful to your church, He's pleased with that. He's pleased. You must examine yourself and consider your ways, but constant introspection is going to leave you hopeless. If you search your heart, it won't take you long to find areas of your life that aren't fully pleasing to God. And when the Spirit sheds light upon them, you, Christian, you have the ability and the access to flee to Christ, to run to Him, to take that displeasure to Him, for Him to give you the gifts of faith and repentance, to turn from those things which don't please God. You must look to Christ. Jesus said of Himself in John eight twenty nine, I always do the things that please Him. There's your example. Quit comparing yourself to other people that call themselves Christians and look to the Lord Jesus who says... I always do the things that please God. Jesus Christ is the only man that's ever lived that has continually had the full pleasure of God at all times. But that same Lord Jesus Christ has taken the pleasure that God has placed upon Him 
and he's given that to you. Not just in a positional way, but he wants you to have that pleasure in a practical way. He wants you to experience the blessings and the fullness of joy that come when we please God. I'm so thankful for what God has done and is doing in our church. Last Wednesday night, at our time of prayer, God just met with us in a special way and we were praising Him for His faithfulness to us. I'm so thankful for that. But though I'm thankful, I also have sanctified discontentment. You know what I mean by that? In many ways, I believe we're just scratching the surface on the reality and the power and the presence of God in our midst. And we need a sanctified discontentment. We need a holy dissatisfaction that causes us to say, Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing, but we want more. We want more. We thank you for the truth of your word, but we want to know more. We thank you for the communion we have with one another, but we want more. We thank you for the manifesting yourself, but we want more. We're not satisfied with the depth of our worship. We're not satisfied with the power of God in our life. We're not satisfied with the presence of God in our church. We want more. May our prayer for 2023 be, Lord, give us more of you. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to please him. There's no magical formula to incur the power and presence of God. There's not uh, step one, step two, step three, boom, you've got revival. (laughs) That's terrible theology. These things must be diligently sought through prayer, waiting upon Him. But it's not a passive waiting. It's not a passive praying. As we pray for God's presence, part of that prayer is, Lord, would would you have us to identify those areas of our lives that need to be brought into conformity to your word so that our church can be a place that is fit for your presence. I pray this for myself. I pray this for this church. And the answer that I have found in the word of God, which has now become my theme for 2023, is Hebrews 12 and verse 14, which says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive after holiness or you won't see God in this life or in the next. God says, you want to see me? You want to experience my presence in your your life? You You want my power to descend upon your church? Then pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. We cannot afford to tolerate worldliness, carnality, immaturity, or silliness if we expect to go deeper in the things of God and it starts with your desires. That's where it starts. If you're content with living a mediocre Christian life, if you're content with going another year claiming to be a Christian and barely cracking your Bible, if you're content with being stingy and selfish and self-centered while claiming to love the Lord, then there's not really much for you to do. Just go on living the way you've always been living and you'll get the same results. But if you want more of God, if you want a deeper reality of His power and His presence, if you want to see His glory, then you're going to have to have a desire. A desire to please Him. A desire to be holy even as He is holy. And a desire to praise and magnify and glorify Him to the greatest of your feeble abilities. And you do that while trusting in His grace to strengthen you.
to strengthen him. May we, by his grace, pursue holiness that we might see him. And in seeing him, may we savor him for his glory and for our joy. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. And Lord, I am so thankful that on the first day of 2023, we're able to spend it in your house worshiping you and praising you. And I pray that the word of God that was preached here today would go forth in power and that it would minister to hearts, that we would be challenged and encouraged to become more holy and more like you, to seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.